Hello. Um, I think I'm live on Facebook. I'm just going to wait for a second to uh, see if anybody can verify that. I'm using this new software, Zoom, and I'm not 100% it works. So we're going to find out in a second. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah, seems to be working. Uh, thanks for joining me. Um, uh, what have I been up to? I just did a really uh, fun podcast that will hopefully be up in the next month or two uh, by a guy called uh, Moshe Kashner, if I'm pronouncing his name right, comedian. Um, he has a podcast called Hound Tall, and it's done in front of a live audience. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Basically, it's four comedians and, and, a, and a guest, and the guest was me. And you can imagine how difficult that is uh, when you're working with four comedians, uh, each of whom are there to kind of have a laugh or whatever. So I had to fight to be heard. I feel like it was a, an experiment in quantum mechanics because I couldn't figure out if it was like the best thing I've done or the worst thing I've done or simultaneously a superposition. It, it's both because, you know, at times it was disjointed and, and went in all weird directions. But there were some magical moments. Uh, there was one in particular that is one of the most magical little experiences I've had in doing interviews. I won't tell you what it is. You'll have to uh, listen to it to find out. So hopefully that will that will be up in a little while. Um, I'm also, what else have I been doing? Oh yeah, I, um, uh, I'm thinking about doing a C.S. Lewis retreat. I won't talk too much about it here. Uh, you can go on my social media to find out more. But C.S. Lewis was born in Belfast. And uh, I'm kind of thinking that I grew up actually just right around the corner from him. Um, played um, uh, when I was younger and also, uh, you know, when I was older, had parties in the house that was right beside Little Lee where C.S. Lewis grew up. And, you know, I want to do a critical retreat in this hotel, this beautiful hotel where he had his honeymoon with joy and where he spent many holidays. Uh, it's a hotel that that bleeds into this forest that supposedly was an inspiration for the landscape of Narnia. So I don't know if I'm going to do it or not, uh, but I might. I've been kind of like testing the waters a little bit. And also, uh, what else? Oh, yes, I'm doing a, a Q&A session on Saturday online with for my Patreon supporters, uh, the Paro Seminars. So if you're if you're one of my uh, five dollars or more Patreon people, um, I will hopefully be talking to you on Saturday. So anyway, that's what I've been up to. Uh, let me know what you've been doing. I can see your comments. They're starting to come up. Uh, hopefully the sound quality is good. The last time I did this, there was a weird thudding in the background. I don't know what that was. Um, but today I thought I would just do a little reflection on the theme of universalism. Uh, it's an interesting theme in religion um, because I remember actually Rob Bell a while back was uh, a lot of conservatives were saying, oh, he's a universalist, uh, as if this was you know, something kind of, uh, you, you know, bad or unorthodox in Christianity. But interestingly, Christianity has always been a universalistic religion in its conservative and liberal forms. And what I mean by that is... Uh, Within the conservative world, uh, Christianity has always been universal in the sense that the message is for everybody. Right? Now, that's different than when you look at, say, Islam or if you look at Judaism, that can, can be described as particularistic religions. In other words, 
um, if you encounter someone who's Jewish, who's uh, talking to people on the street, doing some form of outreach, uh, you'll find that they ask, are you Jewish? And if you say no, they don't really, really want to talk to you. It's like, oh, have a nice day. Whereas obviously it's the other way around if you meet you know, Christian missionaries. And that's because uh, they're often trying to reach out to the Jewish community. And within Judaism, there is a place for the Gentile. There's a place for the one who's not Jewish. Uh, you're not this complete nobody and nothing who's damned to hell. In fact, if you turn around and you say, I'm not Jewish, but I'd like to become Jewish, uh, that's a real nightmare. It'll be like, you know, that'll be the worst experience you could give them. It's such a hassle, right? Um, whereas within Christianity, uh, in its conservative form, there's this idea that the message is for everybody. And so if you don't accept it, you are, in a sense, nobody. Well, you know, you go to hell, the kind of the place of the complete outsider. Um, so in that sense, it's obviously a universalistic religion. Uh, within, within progressive circles, uh, Christianity is a universal religion, not simply in its message. Uh, which, so con conservatives, it's a universal message, but a limited um, uh, group that, that get that message. Within progressive circles, you'll discover that there's a universal message and the scope is for everybody. Everybody gets in. So for the conservatives, only a small number of people get in. Uh, within the progressive movement, everybody gets in at the end of the day. Now, um, I want to talk about that uh, and contrast that with the kind of universalism within paratheology. The universal, universalism in paratheology is the idea that there is a universal message and it is that we all need to get out, right? We all need to get out of the inside. If, if the conservatives say only a few people get into heaven, into the right group, uh, into the right tribe, um, liberals say, oh, listen, at the end of the day, everybody gets in. Um, in paratheology and radical theology, it's like, no, the job is to get everybody out. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, in a sense, existentialists, I think, grasp this in a very deep way. You know, Jean-Paul Sartre had a famous example where he was in a cafe uh, in Paris, watching this waiter, you know, deliver food and deliver coffees. And he noticed that the waiter was really into being a waiter, right? Like he was the stereotypical Parisian uh, waiter with the, with the arm out and the tray on his arm with a, uh, a towel uh, hanging over his, his upper arm. And all his movements were very precise. And Sartre used this as an example of someone being inauthentic. He says, when I look at this waiter, it's almost like he thinks he's a waiter. In other words, he thinks his subjectivity is used up in his job, in his role in society at that time. Right? Because for Jean-Paul Sartre, there is something about human subjectivity that is always other than, more than, um, always, there's always a remainder to our various identities within a given ideology. We are interpolated into ideology, which means we are inserted into a whole world with a matrix of meaning, with a whole constellation of values. Uh, we enter the world into a language that predates us, uh, into ideas that predate us. That's why Heidegger says our history lies in front of us, because in a sense, the history of our, of our uh, 
society is something that we we are born into. It's we are immersed in it. Um, ultimately, it's kind of at first it's on the outside, and then it kind of like it, it saturates into us, and we take it on. And Jean-Paul Sartre is saying that when we think that we are fully interpolated into ideology, we we engage in a form of inauthentic existence because there is something about being human which is about projecting towards new possibilities, new identities, new, uh, new novel experiences. Uh, the, a rock might be, be a rock, a dog might be a dog, a television set might be a television set, but a human is inhuman, as in a human can always become something else. To be human is to become human, to, to be open to new possibilities. Now, this is interesting because, you know, when I read Christianity, my understanding is when Paul says neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, he's making a comment about how these various identities that, that, that people at his time were born into do not fully exhaust human subjectivity. There is something about us that is neither nor. And by saying that we identify with Christ, is to identify with the one who lost all identity, something I've talked about extensively elsewhere and written about. But the idea that to be crucified was to be you know, cursed of God, so to be outside the religious system, to no longer be a citizen, so no longer to be under the political ideology, and to be crucified naked outside the city, which is literally where hell was, you know, the big the, the dumping ground that was always on fire. was. So you, you were no longer a person, you were a thing and nobody and a nothing. And so to identify with Christ, to pick up your cross and follow him, wasn't picking up a new identity. It was to identify with the one who lost identity. So ironically, to be a non-Christian is to, you know, in a sense, exhibit Christianity. In other words, if Christianity is a new tribal identity of who's in and who's out, to place yourself outside of that as a non-Christian is to identify with the one who lost all identity. Um, interestingly, uh, Karl Marx, he had a name for the complete outsider because here's the thing, within this idea uh, to be a human is to, as I said, not be reducible to some sort of system because ultimately that is inauthentic it's destructive, um, it, it damages us. Uh, even when you're part of an ideological system that values you, it's damaging. So in ideology, even the winners lose. The losers win doubly, right? So if you're interpolated into a system that, that is prejudiced against you, you lose doubly. But even the people who win lose. It damages everybody, though not all equally. Um, Marx called the group who is the outsider of the proletariat. Now, interestingly, the proletariat is not the working class. It's the new class. It's the nobodies and the nothings. Whoever the nobodies and the nothings are in your society, in your school, in your world, they're technically the name of the proletariat. They're the silenced ones. So today in our culture, think of the slums in say Kenya or Venezuela or Mexico. Think of the prisoners in you know, America, the homeless population. Think of those who we don't think of, who are the ones that don't have any voice, that maybe make our products, 
uh, that that allow us to live our lives without being physical at all. Right? That's kind of like the proletariat. And so one of the ideas that comes out of this is that uh, in order to realize the violence of the ideological systems that we are interpolated into, we need to encounter those who embody the complete outside, who embody the complete outsider. And in doing that, we both see the violence of the ideological systems that we're in, and we can also realize that we are not fully uh, equal to those systems. We begin to see that other possibilities are open, other ideas are possible. And in a sense, even if you're on the inside, you're, there's something about being human that is striving to break that, to break through that. So Christianity for me at its most radical and paratheology is having a sensitivity to the outside and to the outsider, to, the, to those who, who are deemed nobody and nothing within our systems. To always think that there is where the absolute is, there is where salvation is. And of course, this is, this is built into the very nature of crucifixion. Christ you know, was crucified as the complete outsider, get rid of him and we'll get back to God. And then, of course, Christianity said, no, the scapegoat, the complete outsider that you think you have to kill to get to salvation is salvation. Or you take um, the Apostle Paul in his very famous um, conversion experience on the road to Damascus. He is attacking a small group of people called Christians um, that were growing at his time. This movement that was an outburst of Judaism. And he thought, if we could just get rid of those people, kill them, execute them, get rid of them, everything would be wonderful. They were the complete outsiders of the day. And then he had the, you know, the, the, the psychoanalytic insight. He realized that those he was persecuting were the site of his salvation. The complete outsider was able to, uh, was the location that was able to expose himself to himself. Uh, that's partly why, you know, the whole idea of the Samaritan is so important in early Christianity. It's not that Jesus loved Samaritans. <laughs> they thought they were better than everybody else. It was their structural place within society that was important as the complete outsiders. That's what made them, in a sense, this privileged space. Um, so, yeah, so whenever you're thinking about universalism and you go, okay, Christianity has always been universal, right? The conservatives is universal in scope but limited in its effect. Uh, in, in progressive circles, it's universal in its scope and it's universal in its... Um, uh, and then in radical theology and paratheology, it is a message for everybody. And it's, but it's not that universal we all get in, it's the universal call to realize that we are all outside of the identities that we're in. It's a call to listen to those who are the outsiders in our society um, who will show us the violence of the systems that we're in um, who are potentially the ones who can make a real difference that will call us to repentance which means to change our ways and, and break open our ideological systems to new possibilities and that actually this perpetual going outside this perpetual going beyond our identities, tribal identities, is in a sense the universal message, the message of neither nor. 
Okay, there's just a few thoughts. I'm actually going to do an in-depth uh, talk on that because, you know, as you so this is like I've just done 20 minutes on a subject that, you know, we could we could look at for 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 hours, days, months. Um, so I'm going to actually um, probably in the next six months or so do maybe one or two talks that really get into um, the subject matter in, in more than this very provisional way. But I just thought it was helpful to maybe articulate those three things. I think in actually, I think in my book Insurrection, I have a chapter that, that looks at this in more depth. So you can have a little look at that. So I'll just have a little look at, um, at any comments you've made or questions. And then I'll let you get on with your day. Let's see. Yeah, Shannon says um, the complete outsider gives us distance from the from the primary narrative. Yeah, when you encounter the complete outsider, they expose the fractures and the problems within the ideological system that that we can know but can't quite put our finger on. You can feel oppressed. You can feel even when when it's like. As I say, even the winners lose. If you've got loads of money and fame and supposed power, whatever, right? So all the things that say you've won, and yet you are experiencing melancholy, you're experiencing some sort of like emptiness, but you can't put your finger on what it is. The complete outsider who is being damaged by the ideological system very explicitly, they can often expose the problems in, in a very visceral way. Um, so yeah, the, the outsider, that's why, that's why I, I developed these, you know, I won't talk about them now, but various decentering practices. Practices where we listen to the outsider and we, we realize the outside is good news to us. So this, this attempt to, um, you know, partly rediscover that we're all on the outside, we're, but to be human, to be a human subject, is to always be able to transcend your ideological interpolation, but also in in listening to the complete outsiders who are the ones who are who are dying as a result of our various you know systems, who are as I say live in slums, um, who are who are making our products and our clothes and have no rights. Um, as we encounter them, we begin to actually see in a very explicit way. Uh, the problems with our system. I think this, this is one of the reasons why I like Mother Teresa, because <laughs> Mother Teresa said, if ever I become a saint, uh, you shall never find me in hell. I shall be on the outside guiding the way. Now, of course, she probably kind of meant guiding the way into heaven, but from reading Mother Teresa carefully, um, I think there's a large dimension of Mother Teresa where she was all about breaking the idea of being on the inside. She never wanted to be that. Even in Calcutta, her whole thing about transgressing caste systems was about, you know, always reaching out to the complete outsider. She even said, I find God not an inner experience, you know, but rather in the face of the infant that I hold. You know, I find the divine, I find meaning um, in, in the people who are helped by the work of uh, of her order so yeah there's that that move and i think mother Teresa. so she's a bit of a patron saint for me of uh of this type of parotheology um let's see yeah i mean by the way lots of people are making brilliant comments this is really cool uh louis says this embrace of the untouchables sounds like a part of the cross of scandal yeah i mean i someday i want to write a book about how to be what we have to embrace hell, 
um, that actually part of the radical Christian message is, is entering hell. What I mean by that is hell was the, the, basically the dumping ground uh, outside the city walls where all the rubbish was put and the fires were lit. And you, when you were crucified, you were crucified outside the city walls. It was kind of symbolic of you're not on the inside. You're not in the inside of the wall. You're out there as a nothing, right? So because crucifixion wasn't just a death, and that's what makes it significant. Uh, this was not simply a physical death. You died symbolically first. So there was a symbolic death, and then there was a biological death. And uh, I think that's what makes the crucifixion so, so pertinent, um, a symbol, uh, is because in a sense to identify with crucifixion is first and foremost to identify with a form of crucifixion that symbolically killed you, that made you a nobody and a nothing before your actual biological death. So there is this really interesting thing where you identify with what Louis says, the untouchables, and in that um, you you find meaning and depth. You find the sacred in, in that act. Uh, let's see. Lots of people listening from all over the place. Uh, oh, yeah, Seth says, what you're sort of touching on is what Sartre calls bad faith. That's exactly it. I, I can't believe I didn't mention that. I think I said inauthenticity. But yeah, this idea that you're completely reducible to your position whether positive or negative within society, Sartre would call bad faith, because in a sense you're you're reducing yourself to something less than what it means to be human. All right, there are some thoughts on universalism. If you'd like to, you know, actually be part of my kind of more in-depth uh, pyro seminars, then just uh, jump onto my Patreon. Uh, but I'll be doing lots more degree ones as well. I think this is number fifty-two. Uh, so there's plenty out there. Uh, thanks for tuning in. And I'll, uh, I'll, oh, and if any of you are doing Atheism for Lent, fantastic. I hope you're having a good time. We're like, we're almost, I think we're two weeks into it now. We've done uh, the whole critique of God as a being. Now we're going to look at the mystics and the atheism within theological mysticism. Uh, that's next week. And uh, I hope you're, you're getting something out of that. All right. Take care of yourselves. And, um, I'll check in with you probably next week.